Listener supported. WNYC Studios. From WNYC Studios, I'm Brian Lehrer. This is my Daily Politics Podcast. It's Tuesday, June 27th. Some Supreme Court decisions handed out this morning. The court issued three opinions today, including two that we consider really big on independent state legislatures. That's kind of overwhelmingly big. And another on what constitutes a true threat. That still leaves a number of cases to be decided that are considered extremely controversial and consequential. We're keeping tabs on ones like on affirmative action in college admissions, President Biden's student loan forgiveness program and a couple of religious rights cases. But back with us to talk about today's rulings is our June court watcher, Ellie Mistal, justice correspondent for The Nation and host of its new podcast, Contempt of Court, with Ellie Mistal. And, and in addition to his book called Allow Me to Retort, uh, Black Guy's Guide to the Constitution. Ellie, thanks for being on standby for all of these decisions, and welcome back to the show. Brian, we get to have a democracy for like a whole nother election cycle. I'm excited. Ha. Moore versus Harper, the North Carolina case, six to three in favor of uh, the courts continuing to have the ability to review redistricting at the state level. That can sound pretty wonky to people who haven't been following it, but you and a lot of people are concluding, yes, we get to keep a democracy for at least another election cycle. How come? Well, look, the the case here is about whether the in the legislatures of each individual state get to set all of the rules about how elections run in those states or whether the judiciary is allowed to kind of overlook the process, right? The Republicans in North Carolina argue that the state legislature and only the state legislature gets to set election rules. And that is just not something that comports with our constitutional understanding, either at the federal level or the state level. It is, Brian, exactly the plot of the coup, the, the the legalistic part of the coup, right? Not the violent part of the coup, but this idea that the person who gets to decide who really won the state, which electors really should be sent to Washington, that the person who gets to decide that is the state legislature instead of the state's voters subject to state uh, uh, a court review. That right. is the theory that the Supreme Court six to three rejected today. And I just want to read really quickly um, Mm -hmm. from the opinion because it's such a clear statement from John Roberts, who wrote the majority opinion, Chief Justice John Roberts, who wrote the majority opinion. The elections clause, that's of the Constitution, does not vest exclusive and independent authority in state legislatures to set the rules regarding federal elections. That, my friend, is a mic drop. That just, that ends that theory. Um, Hopefully, we don't have to worry about this anymore. Yeah. And when you say it's relevant to the coup, this was just about redistricting, but it had so many implications for whether a Trump-style steal of an election could take place, because we recall 
that he was trying to get some state legislatures, like in Pennsylvania and other places where Biden won, but Republicans control the legislature, uh, to flip the result. And when he tried to get the courts to do that, he lost like 60 times in all these swing states. And the courts wouldn't even have had a say if this ruling went the other way, right? That is exactly right. The instant case was about um, a map that North Carolina Republicans drew that was allegedly partisanly uh, gerrymandered in an illegal way. But to overcome that state court ruling that the maps were partisanly gerrymandered, Republicans went to this kind of nuclear option that, yes, would have allowed if not only the maps in North Carolina to go forward. And by the way, the partisanly gerrymandered maps in North Carolina are still going to go forward. This doesn't, I don't think, change what's going to happen on the ground in North Carolina, but it would have allowed the kind of John Eastman coup attempts, the, the, the fake elector attempts. It would have made that a lot more easy for Republicans to pull off without judicial review. And that is the statement um, that Roberts uh, and uh, uh, a majority of members on the court rejected. I, I will say, I don't know, in, in a kind of a legal procedural way, I don't know that they got it right. Um, certainly they got it right that independent state legislature theory is bunk. Like that, that, that's, that was always a wackadoodle theory that should have, to me, it should have been 9-0 um, on that question. But procedurally, there was an issue where North Carolina put forward these maps, the state Supreme Court overruled the maps. Then basically they re-argued in front of a different state Supreme Court and North Carolina was like, actually, no, the maps are fine. Technically, that should have made this entire Supreme Court case moot. And that means like a not a live issue that it was a, hmm. you know, it, it was a ruling that the states figured out on themselves and didn't require Supreme Court review. And in his dissent, the first part of his dissent, Clarence Thomas makes, I, I think, a compelling argument for why this entire case should have been moot and the court shouldn't have ruled on the case at all. Um, later in Thomas's dissent, he goes full on into the wackadoodle independent state legislature theory and, and you know it's it's his usual trashy thomas opinion but the first part i think is 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 relevant and there's an argument here that what the court has really done is to once again assert its supremacy the supreme the federal supreme court's supremacy over this entire kind of field and canon of law um almost you, you can read the opinion as roberts giving himself and his court kind of even more power to 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 rule for itself what is and is not allowed um, in federal elections. Interesting. Are you at all surprised that this ruling was six to three, which means in addition to the three justices we usually call the liberal justices, three justices who we usually call the conservative justices, Agreed. And that is Justice Roberts, Chief Justice Roberts, who wrote uh, the majority opinion, plus Kavanaugh and Amy Coney Barrett. I'm a little surprised that Kavanaugh, just because in a former life, when Kavanaugh was a lawyer for the Republican Party, specifically in the case of Bush v. Gore, Kavanaugh is one of the guys who came up with independent state legislator theory um, as a way to make George W. Bush president, right? Like people, you know, I'm going to show my age here, but in the before times, in the long, long ago of the year 2000, the, the argument in Bush v. Gore was whether or not 
a state mandated recount could go forward, right? It was the re the recount was ordered by the Florida State Supreme Court, right? Republicans, people who wanted Bush to be president, wanted that recount to stop. And one of Kavanaugh's arguments, I mean, he's there are clips of him like on CNN making this argument back in the day. One of oh. his arguments was that the the Florida State Supreme Court could not order the recount to continue because of independent state legislature theory. Now, in Bush v. Gore, the majority more or less rejected that argument there. And so here in Moore v. Hopper, you know, fast forward 23 years, Kavanaugh is also now against independent state legislature theory, which was a bit surprising. Kavanaugh did, in this case, write a concurrence that, um, if you may give me some, some creative license to summarize, Kavanaugh's concurrence was, this case is wrong, but what I did in Bush v. Gore was totally right and okay. Like it's it's a very self-serving three-page concurrence, mm -hmm. but fundamentally, Kavanaugh went, went with the majority against independent state legislature theory, um, kind of flip-flopping on a position that he had 23 years ago. Um, so that was interesting to me. I'm not surprised that we got Roberts. Roberts was never, I think, gonna go for this. I'm not totally surprised that we got uh, a Barrett. I am, again, a little bit surprised that they didn't just take the kind of easier way out and just kick the entire case on mootness. Uh, the 2000 election, how quaint to think about the 2000 Bush versus Gore election, <laughs> which we used to think of as the most legally challenging for democracy <laughs> in the history of presidential elections. Now that idea seems, seems quaint. Um, if I had... The time machine, Brian, that's still the date that I would go back to. I still think that's where everything went wrong. <laughs> huh. um, but do we learn something from the fact that Kavanaugh might have argued for independent state legislature theory uh, at that time when he was a lawyer and now rules against it as a Supreme Court justice that we can't assume that just because somebody takes a case as a lawyer that that's their opinion and that they can still think independently when they become a justice? I don't know if I would go that far, Brian. Again, I would go that far without Kavanaugh's concurrence in this case, right? But like I said, his concurrence is a completely self-serving, you know, three pages of just why he was always right. And this isn't a flip-flop, right? It's mm, it's very, uh -huh. I was for it before I was against it kind of, uh, kind of writing. So what I take from it is less that is less that they become independent thinkers once they ascend to the high court, but more that they understand that they are in a political milieu, right? The, the Supreme Court would like us to believe that they are above the law, that they are above politics, that they do not concern themselves with these petty squabbles between the parties, but they ain't. They're paying attention. They know and they understand, I think, that this case would have unleashed um, really dark forces in the country, um, unleashed real uh, a real change and challenge to how democracy works in this country. And for the most part, they balked, right? And so I think that we do see that a, a justice like Kavanaugh, a justice like Barrett, certainly a justice like John Roberts, they are concerned with how their court is viewed kind of in the media, and politically, and I think this kind of case shows that they are not they are not ignorant to the forces writ large in the country. All right. There was one more decision that came down today that was on our list of big ones 
that we're watching. It's known as the true threat case, technically Countermin versus Colorado. And this hinges on whether what matters is if you think you reasonably conclude that you're being threatened or if the other person actually intended to threaten you. I can't help but think of the Daniel Penny uh, chokehold murder of Jordan Neely or chokehold killing of Jordan Neely that courts will have to decide if it was was manslaughter. Um, but that obviously was not the case in front of the Supreme Court. What was? Yeah, this is a really interesting case, Brian. Basically, we have a stalker, right? We have a person who was sending Facebook messages to a, a man who was sending Facebook messages um, to a woman that he didn't know, but was, you know, it was, they were very, you know, they, they were very creeper, right? They were, oh, I like the new Jeep you bought. She's never met this man before. Looks like you were just at the grocery store. She's never met this man before, right? And so the woman got scared, I think legitimately so, and sued, right? Now, here's the thing is the the messages that he were sent that he was sending they weren't you know i'm going to kidnap you and kill you right they weren't threatening in that kind of violent way they were awfully disconcerting and so the question then in front of the court was whether these kinds of messages um whether or not those would trip what's called true threat analysis which is a legal jargon term for when your free speech stops because you're freaking other people out, right? Like at some point, your right to harass people under the First Amendment stops because you're a creeper, right? Like we understand that, right? So the question from the Supreme Court is where you draw the line. So the what the ruling was, 7-2, written by Elena Kagan, um, it's very interesting. She basically lets the stalker win the actual case. He was convicted of you know harassment or whatever. And she says, no, 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 he has to be retried because the uh, the, the state, the, the, the Colorado uh, state court used a standard of objectivity, that these were objectively threatening messages. And Kagan says, no, 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 you have to look at this subjectively. You have to look at this in terms of whether or not the person receiving the message reasonably or legitimately or whatever um, understood those messages to be a threat. It's a subjective standard, not an objective standard. How, so that's kind of a win for the stalker. But she says that that subjective standard should be one of recklessness, mere recklessness, which is basically you, you, sh you knew or you should have known that these messages would have been taken the wrong way. And that is, frankly, a different, lower, weaker standard than I think we had before so even though Kagan made the stalker win the kind of actual lawsuit, I think she very cleverly set up a situation where it's going to be easier to sue people for the online threats, harassment, stalking, whatever um, uh, that they make through social media platforms. This stalker was using Facebook. People can imagine people using Twitter or whatever replaces Twitter uh, soon in the future. Um, we can imagine these cases now being a little bit easier to prove under Kagan's subjective recklessness standard than they were before, even though she's made a ruling that kind of favors the stalker in the instant case at the bar. It's a really mm -hmm. interesting decision and a clever one, um, but I think the right one. I think that given where we are online, we have to have 
stronger protections against stalkers, stronger protections against these creepers. And it shouldn't have to be just, you know, well, I'm going to kill you. Something as simple as, you know, nice Jeep you just bought there. Um, we should at least be able to have a case about that. And right. I think but that that's in our last 15 seconds, uh, protections that if you reasonably think you're being threatened, you can do what? You can put somebody in a fatal chokehold. You can sue them in civil court. You know what I mean? You can do what? 15 seconds, Ellie. You can sue them. <laughs> Definitely. You can't choke them to death. You can sue them and have and, and they can't just run behind the First Amendment. They have to make some other showing that they didn't mean, intend or think that the messages they sent you were going to be threatening. And you can get a restraining order, right? Yes, yes, yes. Ellie Mistal, justice correspondent for The Nation, author of the book, Allow Me to Retort, and host of The Nation's new podcast, Contempt of Court, with Ellie Mistal. And Ellie's going to be on standby for us for what we think are going to be the last two days of the term of the Supreme Court with big rulings yet to come Thursday and probably Friday. Ellie, talk to you then. Thank you for today. Thank you so much, Brian. Brian Lehrer, A Daily Politics Podcast, is an excerpt from my live daily radio show, The Brian Lehrer Show, on WNYC Radio, 10 a.m. to noon Eastern Time, if you want to listen live at WNYC.org. Thanks for listening today. Talk to you next time.